0: Thank you for listening and subscribing to the Reconstructing Inclusion podcast. Also, if you haven't bought Reconstructing Inclusion: Making DEI Accessible, Actionable, and Sustainable, my book, please pick it up. We also have a Substack now under the name Reconstructing Inclusion. I'll be putting more content on that Substack before you know it. Hi everyone and welcome to the Reconstructing Inclusion podcast. I'm Aubrey Johnson, your host, and I am joined today by Peter Mike Musaferi- per- My- Peter, I say your name wrong the- all the time. Musa Fer- I think you're just nervous. It's Moussafiriadis. That's as right. I have said it 50 million times. I'm joined today by Peter Moussafiriadis, Reza Molini, and Michael Walmsley from Cultural Infusion, also the organization called Diversity Atlas. I am delighted to have you gentlemen on today. You all are from the down under, as we call it in the U.S., and we are excited to ex- to exchange with you today. I've been talking to you all, what, now for over a year, maybe a little, almost two.
1: I think it might be closer to three years. Three years?
0: That. Yeah, I've totally... got out. I well, so it's, it's, it's since I've moved to Switzerland, so yeah, it's been about three years, and I've come to just really admire the way you all are thinking about this work and, and the work you're doing. So I'm delighted to jump into the conversation. So um, without me going into too much, I'm, I'm gonna start with you, Peter. Um, can you tell us about your your work and what we now call DEI? And before you do that, just share with us a person or a book that's inspired you personally or professionally in your career journey.
1: Well, I think the book Clockwork Orange. I read that when I was about seventeen, so that's going back. I don't want to reveal my age, but it was back in the eighties, <laughs> and I, I just found it such a fascinating book, and and the language in the book, and, and then I went and saw the movie, and I've seen the movie another ten times since then, and this so, and every time I see the movie, there's there's something extra in that movie, and I think it's one of the great masterpieces uh of the 20th century you know and Stanley Kubrick what an incredible mind that he had and the attention to the detail so if you've never seen the movie read the book or go and see the movie and then read the book it's a great masterpiece uh, thanks
0: thanks Peter it took me back a little bit too I'm not going to reveal my age but it took me back as well so tell us about how did you get into this world of DEI
1: Peter well, I think it's been a natural progression since the 80s, and if I go back even a lot further, uh, you know, and I look at my parents and growing up behind a milk bar, which was a convenience store, um, you know, and, and my parents didn't speak much English, and they moved in the, into an area which was predominantly Anglo-Saxon, and over the very first few months, with uh, quite a bit of a culture shock. Now, I was only four years of age back then. Now, we're talking early 70s, and you know, seeing my parents' uh, windows getting uh, smashed all the time, and Insurance companies wouldn't insure my parents. And who are these foreigners that have come into this area? So I was already started to think about difference back then. Was I able to articulate it? No, but I then started to ha- take an interest in the arts. And I had a career as a conductor, composer, creative director. And there was always this common thread of you know celebrating and promoting a diversity of cultural expressions. At the same time, I also had an interest in religious studies, and so I majored in Kornay Greek, which was the the language of the New Testament, and I was even contemplating becoming a theologian at one stage. So I had this interest in cultures and languages and peoples and and histories. So that was always embedded in all my work. Uh, And then I started to move into the education space early 2000 when I established Cultural Infusion as a way of being able to, you know, just foster greater uh, intercultural understanding and really start to value intercultural understanding as this key competency of what it means to be a global citizen today. But through education, we also wanted to combat discrimination and you know and, and a whole range of other fears, you know, because if you look at discrimination, what drives it is fear and ignorance. So the to become collaboration, become familiarization. So no better way than education and really taking it taking programs into you know preschool centers into primary school and secondary school and that program that education program within a short period of time grew to more than you know 300,000 students participating in the program on an annual basis Dei came a lot later now did I even know did I even hear the word diversity equity and inclusion probably not but 2015 was a really important year we'd already been moving into technology but Reza Moyini, he was the one that started to get me thinking about metrics and how we could start to quantify this work. But I really couldn't take my work any further anyway because I sort of pushed it to the limits. So trying to now understand human identity and all the attributes that make up human identity and how it intersects with peace and social cohesion and geopolitics and recognising that this work's really complex. But the value of having inclusive data sets right from the very beginning where, you know what? Uh, when you have those inclusive data sets, it speaks to the theme of your program. Inclusion wins at the end of the day because no one is being left out. And when no one is being left out and every single person is being counted, we can really start to celebrate identity and then have a basis for which we can start to develop a whole range of you know strategies.
0: Thank you so much for that, Peter. Michael, I'm going to come to you how did you get into this work called DEI, and if you have a book that you would like or a person that influenced you, I would, we'd love to hear about that as well. Oh,
2: well, books. I suppose growing up, one of my favorite books was Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams, just because of the absurdity. The scale, I mean, and the diversity, let's face it, and just the sort of links, subtle links between where we are now. I remember the inventor of peril-sensitive sunglasses. Well, peril-sensitive glasses, If you saw danger, they went black. And of course, then you took them off to see what was happening. So there's some really quite intricate messages there to humanity. But I think overall, it's just the humour and the importance of humour in terms of breaking down barriers, and difference and all those There's so much in that book. The movie, yeah, it's okay. It's okay, but I love that book. And then more recently, Freedom of Midnight, which, you know, talks about the decolonization of, of India and the formation of Pakistan, and just the, oh, the solidarity, the, the battles, the challenges, the complexities, you know, the person that was brought in to draw the boundary line in two weeks, a lawyer from London. Yeah, and of course, you know what happened after. That's what that we
0: always do. We call a lawyer from London to draw boundaries. That's- well,
2: he was trying. Man, back was trying to find someone who wasn't attached to the area.
0: Yeah,
2: you know, but so there, there was. Oh, Probably of many- needed one from Switzerland. You know, to be
0: honest. Yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> the person—it's harder. There's just been so many. I mean, people I worked with. You know, it changes all the time. But there yeah. were some early people. I remember doing a course way back with Robert Kiyosaki. Spent a lot of money listening to him speak and spent time with him. And you know, he was really, truly inspirational, you know, something very different from what I'd ever experienced before. And, you know, I love his philosophies on life and people and cycles. So forth. So, yeah.
0: What was First the second question? <laughs> <laughs> you kind of almost always started answering it around. How did you get into this work we call GEI?
2: Well, I came into this work by joining this organisation. So I was sort of probably a, an unconscious and who obviously passionate, but passionately believes in this space. So my Mike, don't forget
1: was... the lectern, the lectern. Don't forget the Not lectern. lectern. No, that's
2: right. Yeah. So I was working for another startup and I, we had an event on and I needed a lectern. If we needed to look kind of, you know, full and guys working with it says, I know someone that's got a lectern. So I borrowed this lectern and it uh, was sitting around. And I said to this person, I need to get this lectern back. He goes, oh, don't worry. It's not urgent. I said, no, no I feel really bad. I've got to, you know, got to take it back. So I made the point of delivering it personally and uh, met Peter. He was the owner of the letter and he started talking about what he was doing. And I was just like, wow, this is just next level. And I said to Peter at the time, this is a SaaS business. And then Peter went, a what business? <laughs> so, you know, we kind of instantly clicked, I think then in terms of the difference of what we could bring to this whole journey, but you know, I've been fortunate to work for a lot of startups and in startups, you build teams and I've had a very simple philosophy around building teams, which is never to hire someone like myself and It served me very well. And as a consequence, we've had teams where people have always said, this is the best team I've ever worked in. And I always ask them why, and they say the same thing. There's no one like me. And I suppose it's just seeing the value of that in play and the relationships that are formed because of difference and seeing that now you know, scale out into an industry on its own or an industry that has so much to offer and seeing what we're sort of working with is really inspirational to me in so yeah, many yeah. different ways. So,
0: Thank you, Michael. Reza, same question. Your journey into DEI, a book or person, or even a song or a movie, Reza, influenced you or inspired you in your life or career journey? It'll be Lionel Richie. <laughs>
3: Thank you very much, Andy. Talk Yeah, I like 70s, 80s. I mean, that's my favorite. I'm still stuck in like 60s to 80s kind of music. I don't know. Maybe, I mean, I love Dean Martin. He had one cover song called, uh, you may remember, called, what was that? You're nobody until somebody loves you. I love uh-huh. that song back then, it was very like feeling good. But yeah, I'm, I was like like 80s, 70s. USA for Africa, I love to see all my characters in one shot. But yeah, I, I joined Culture Infusion in another journey, I mean, similar to Michael. Um, it was not in my career path to work in the area of diversity and inclusion. So I, I have a degree in engineering, I had a degree in uh, as a computer scientist, And back in 2015, I I had recently moved to Australia as a a, a skilled migrant, and I was trying to uh, secure a job in my field as a broadcast engineer, as a data scientist in those fields. Um, And I was struggling how you can secure your first job while you don't have your uh, local experience. I I had some huge, big interviews and uh, get past the first uh, round of interviews, second round and third round with a uh, 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 CEO of enterprise companies. and t- told me, Chris, you know what? Everything is alright, but just I mean, compared to someone with local experience with uh, less language barrier, and it's a managerial position, do you prefer someone with local experience?" And you know what? I, I said, "Yeah, that I, I get that. I, I totally understand. That's that's fine." And there was an opportunity at Culture Infusion back then as a. A temporary IT administrator, IT manager later, and it was not in my career path. But I thought, you know what? It's close to my home back then in Ivanhoe, Melbourne. It's easy. I think I can do that. It's not in my career path, but I can. I will get my hands dirty and I just make few friends and I know that how these Aussie guys do things. And yeah, I joined the company as an IT manager a few months later. Peter offered me a job, and again, I still was thinking about that as a, like a temporary. A journey and there's the fullest stories on my LinkedIn profile. But during my day to day work, I was trying to understand what these guys are doing actually. And I was hearing these words inclusion, harmony, understanding of each other, belonging. And these words resonate with everyone. Everyone loves that. You don't think there is any single person that's to say that you don't like harmony or balance. Everyone loves these words at some level. But I was trying to understand it from my lens of tech and analytics and data. And I went to Peter one day and I said, yeah, Peter, you're talking about all these beautiful concepts and I really love what you say, but can you please help me understand how do you measure diversity? If you say diversity is good or if you say inclusion is good, are we more or less diverse compared to last year? Are we more or less diverse compared to the company next door? I mean, where's the benchmark here? And um, I will never forget that moment. Uh, he looked at me uh, with his glasses. He didn't have um, the, the moustache back then, but he looked at me and there was a moment of silent, deep silent between us. I said, did I offend him? Was What's happening? He looked at me and said that, uh, Reza, that's a good question. I hadn't thought about that. And that became the beginning of a journey that uh, we still don't know if any time there would be a final answer to this, it's we're just discovering um, as we go. We started, we tried to establish a research methodology around that, build a lot like, of understanding around diversity, build formulas, build an analytic approach to diversity. And we're talking about 2016, 17. And back then, I mean, nowadays, everyone understands diversity measurement surveys. In 2016, uh, people asked you are measuring diversity? Why you want to measure diversity? We have our cultural lunch every year. Everyone brings their food at work, and that's it. Why? You, why do we need such a thing? And we had these things, and uh, I mean the, the the most advanced ones. They said that yeah, we know that how many male and female we have in our team, and that's it. But we started creating a momentum and creating a, a buzz in that area. So because it was based on the research methodology, everyone started to understand. What's the problem statement? What's missing? And there's a method we can put a framework around biodiversity. You understand that and data is unbiased. You can think about solution A, solution B, but data is what you need. Data is where you can start based on a fact-based approach. I mean, if you can't measure something, you can't improve it. And I mean, this is very famous word by, especially in electronic engineering, they've been said by Mr. Tesla, Uh, many years ago, say that if you can measure something, uh, you can't improve it. Uh, And here we are here with a platform and heaps of research and a huge team of passionate people and a future which I think it's bright.
0: Right. Thank you, Reza. Peter, I'm going to turn to you. I want to talk specifically about Diversity Atlas. It's a very, very unique product. There's nothing really that matches it. Can you tell us what it is And Reza gave a little bit about why now. And I'd also like to ask, why is it so important in this 21st century, especially when we're talking about DEI probably more than we ever have?
1: Yeah, and that's an excellent question. And why in the 21st century and why is it more important than ever? Well, I think if we go back to the 80s, go back to the late 80s, 1989, you know, the, the year of when the Berlin War, you know, had, was brought down and Fukuyama said that this is going to be the end of all wars and the end of, you know, history as we understand it. I and mean, the world's going to move into a new age. And you had people like Tim Berners-Lee who gave us the World Wide Web. So all of a sudden, the world started to find itself with this internet, which started to connect us. And then we found ourselves living in what they call and describe as this sort of hyper diverse world, this super diverse world where communication was happening instantly. So everyone's now being exposed to a whole range of ideas across the globe. At the same time, we started to experience a whole range of economic benefits that came with that too. So there's massive economic globalization that came in in a period of three decades. But did we start to experience you know, a globalisation around values and ethics, and probably not. And I think the ability to be able to relate to the other, to understand the other, to to be able to understand the amount of diverse expressions that we've been exposed to on a daily basis requires a competency at the end of the day. And I think what Diversity Atlas is able to do very, very quickly through, you know, the experience of taking the survey in four minutes and using enormous computing technology... Is it's able to offer comprehensive insights, and for the first time, organisations now can get a sense of who they are, which they didn't. The most organisations out there and, you know, annually that's spending hundreds of millions of dollars on marketing technologies to understand their customers, and if you look at the likes of you know Google and Amazon and seen how it, and so. What I think we've started to experience in this yes. Yeah, so I'm going back to marketing technology. So if you look at marketing technologies 30 years ago and how pretty basic they were, you know, they were looking at gender, age, maybe education, some other, you know, demographics, and it become so advanced that to the point where the likes of Amazon and Google and so many other tech giants know what the customer's going to buy before the customers worked out what they're going to buy, but did they know themselves? And, and I think that's what Diversity Atlas is able to do. It's able to quickly, you know, put the organisation under this spotlight and, you know, re- reveal the diversity, the hidden diversity that exists within every single organisation because we're able to really start to look at cultural diversity and see how that intersects against a whole range of other demographic dem- dimensions. So we're not just looking at diversity through the gender lens, but we might be looking at diversity through gender and how it intersects with secular and non-secular traditions, biological sex, how it intersects with position time, position level, and a whole range of other dimensions. And I think that's the beauty of Diversity Atlas, that for the first time, organizations can see who they are and it uses inclusive data sets. And those inclusive data sets have taken the better part of more than three decades to develop. And we're constantly you know, developing them through this citizen science approach, where we're democratizing these data sets and people are giving us real live input. So, you know, we don't see languages being separate to culture. We right. don't see cultures being separate to, you know, secular non-secular traditions or countries. We recognize there's an interdependency and this, you know, this, this connection between all of them, but when you look at cultural diversity and then you look at all these other dimensions of diversity, then that can start to inform a whole range of strategies because the data that we're looking
0: at, everyone's being included, and there's a story in all that data. Yeah, and I'm gonna gonna interject for a second, Peter. Please. Because we talk a lot about this notion of intersectionality, you know, and obviously the, the intersectionality that we talk about is the one that basically has mostly reduced people down to one, two or three variables. Gender, race, and sometimes their other some other identity might come in there, but it's usually been around their gender, sexual orientation, and the racial classification. And I think you now, obviously, the notion of intersectionality that goes beyond that is one that's quite, I would say. Obvious, like we know, different combinations, people with with different identities have different experiences in life, some of them more advantageous to that individual, and others less so. What I hear from what you're doing with Diversity Atlas that I think is really unique is you're starting to bring variables into that conversation about intersectionality that are rarely talked about in our mainstream DEI conversations. How do people digest that? And I want you to answer that, Peter. And then I want to come to you, Michael, when you talk to people about this, because it's a lot, because to me, it's like, wow, this is amazing. To other people are like, no, we need to just focus on these things because it's either easier or more convenient, or I understand them better. But what you all are saying is let's open this up and let's talk about this multidimensional human experience in a more profound way. It's a lot. How do you all help people get their hands and their arms around it, Peter? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think
1: when Kimberley Crenshaw came out in 1989 with her theory around intersectionality, a very important year because that year in 1989 really is a milestone, you know, with the Berlin Wall collapsing, you know, the advent of the World Wide Web. I think the intention was always a great intention. But I think the criticism of intersectionality theory uh, and the reason why that we have the uh, criticism of it is because it gridlocks people into certain identity. And I think the reason why that's come about, and, and I talk about this in my article, is that it's based on limited data sets. And when we talk about identity, what we've tried to do with our work is start to disaggregate these concepts. So if you look at LGBTQIA+, it's a conflation of gender identity, gender expression, biological sex, sexual orientation. If you see what happens in the US, they conflate ethnicity and race. And that's really problematic because what that does is, when you have these broad categories, you start to really inadvertently perpetuate difference, exclusion, inequality, unequal health outcomes. So we need to take a more nuanced approach because when we take a more nuanced approach, approach, we go beyond looking at that person as just saying, well, they're experiencing oppression because of these attributes of their identity without looking at everything else that's going on at the mm-hmm. same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this is uh, what we're trying to do with the work, with our work. It's not saying that intersectionality is a bad thing. We're saying it can be improved through
0: inclusive data sets. Sure. So Michael, A similar question, when you're talking to people around the world about this quite frequently, what comes up, like what story do you tell them about why Diversity Atlas is a tool that we really need to take seriously, that we really need to take up and understand and utilize so that we can understand the complexity of our people. How do you talk about this with folks?
2: Yeah, I think what's missing is people look at the data output. So they they typically already have data. I mean, no one's looking for more data. They can't cope with what they've already got. The bigger question is: Is it the right data? So sometimes we talk about survivorship bias, which you know is a, a theory that was born out of the Second World War when planes were being examined and decisions were being made about where to put reinforcement on returned bombers and. Abraham Wald came up with the very on point comment, which is we're looking at the wrong planes. I want to see the ones that didn't come back. And everyone had this big aha moment and the term survivorship bias was coined. And if you look at the terminology around survivorship bias, it talks about important voices being left out. So people aren't curious or inquisitive enough to think about what data are we missing. But it's also the other side because If the data doesn't exist, how are you going to collect it? What's the data input, right? And more importantly, what experience are you creating to collect that data? And and what we're starting to see now with every census that is run all throughout the world, there are more and more voices that are saying, I feel left out because they can't see themselves in the census. And so the whole purpose of the census is for a government to understand its citizens. So they can better serve them. But how can they better serve them when people don't feel that they're in the census, which is senseless, right? So that's the problem we have to solve is how can we create an experience where everybody can see themselves in a safe, anonymous way? Because people don't trust the systems that exist today to collect the data namely the HR system. I've not spoken to anybody who says, oh, yeah, everyone trusts our HR system. (laughs) It's the opposite. (laughs) And why don't they trust it? Well, because there's no transparency. They don't know what information is in there. They've given it some information because they want to get paid. But anything beyond that, it's it's very difficult. They get pinged about how happy they are and how engaged they are. But that, that doesn't really engage them in the workforce. That's just yeah i'm feeling okay today and these numbers go up to the board and everyone says this is what our engagement score is but is it engaging right that's good question so you've got to think about not only the data that you can see but what's the data that you haven't got and what experience are we um creating to collect that data in a safe anonymous fun engaging inclusive way
0: absolutely mike michael that Brings me to another question. I'm gonna come back to it, but I want you to think about it for a second around the stories that are told when you have an inclusive data set. And maybe you, you might wanna to add to that too, Peter, but I'm gonna ask Reza a question beforehand. But the stories that come out of that, because there's certain things that I just wouldn't think about when I first did Diversity Atlas, I, just things that I wouldn't have thought about, or even the way I think about my family. You know, There's four languages spoken in my home And that's in America, that's not common, maybe two, but rarely you have four kind of just going all day, every day. Right. And what does that mean to the cultural experiences of my family and then how we interact with the outside world? What's that going to mean for my children when they're in the world beyond Switzerland, how they're interacting with the globe in a very different way than I can, because I don't speak all of those languages fluently. So that's just, I want to get into what does it mean when people can, what story do you tell when you could have an inclusive data set as individually and organizationally? Yeah. Before we get to that, Reza, this tool's taken a lot to evolve. And I know you've been challenged on some things. How do the approaches to the work that like a lot of the way DEI people often talk about what we do? How do approaches to DEI doing the work across the globe inform how you've evolved the tool?
3: Wow, I need five hours on that question. You have, less,
0: <laughs> you have less than three minutes, but still. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. I would describe diversity atlas like an MRI or, or X-ray tool in the hands of specialists. So the tool itself doesn't solve the problem itself but when you see the picture, when you put the the system on the MRI, it shows all the pain points based on facts, based on on the right diagnosis approach. Then professionals easily can see the patterns of the data, back to your uh, previous question, they can see their story themselves. The data talks for itself. When you see the high quality or high resolution image of something, you can see all the pixels and you can see which pixel is not aligned which part of the organization is in pain, where is the gap, and then you can address that. And that's how uh, companies use. We rarely we, we tell organizations how to use this. Every organization has a different journey. In the platform, we have almost 700 billion ways of describing one person's identity. You can choose your identity amongst 8,000 plus Ethnicities, eleven thousand plus languages that you speak, almost nine thousand plus different language religious groups, and etc. 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 and combination of them together is almost seven hundred billion ways of describing one person's identity. That's massive. That's the highest resolution uh, picture you can imagine of.
0: Yeah, so I'm going to throw out something that I remember you talking to me about at one point, Peter. And I just had a guest on the podcast with Dr. Sabrina uh, Smith and Dr. David Livingstone Smith, who are self-professed racial abolitionists. They're race abolitionists. They want to abolish the notion of race. And when I first started talking to you all, you all had a lot of ability to describe how somebody looked, but you were not including racial categories in the tool and. That was also right. I talked to you right before George Floyd and then George Floyd came. And I can imagine as soon as somebody gets in the tool and they don't find race, they're like, what's wrong with these people? Talk about that experience and how you've kind of described and explained this notion of what you put in the tool and why and what you haven't put in the tool. Race is one example. Yeah. So
1: we don't ask the question about race we ask the question around appearance and we use the word appearance rather than race for a range of reasons one is because technically in speaking in some countries you can't ask the question we'll use the word race secondly we don't want to perpetuate the myth that there's more than one race at the end of the day that's not to say that people aren't racialized Uh, We recognize the reason why there are differences in appearances is because of evolutionary, geographical, biological processes that have taken place over
0: thousands of years. That's powerful, Peter. That also could bring, and Michael, you've probably experienced this, a lot of people can think "What these folks don't know what they're talking about. Race is the most important thing that we need to focus on in the world of DEI, and if you're not focused on that, you don't get it. So do you get any of that, Michael? And how do you respond? I don't
2: think we get any, I suppose, pushback from it. It's more just a realization that, you know, when you're sort of going through a process of talking about nuanced data and this inclusive process, they, they start to realize the the unintended consequences of, of a term like that, you know, and I often talk about race is only good when, when there's a winner and that's, that's you know, there's a number one and there's a number two and so forth. That's where it should be applied, not when we're trying to, you know, talk about humanity and then how we're all representing all sorts of different amazing things about that. It, it's more just a different way of, of looking at things. You know, one of our clients had to submit, their European client, they had to submit a, a tender for work in America. And one of the questions was, how many black people in your organisation? And what they were able to say is that we've got over 14 different appearances in our organization. And here they are, (laughs) again, because no one's had that data before. No one's been able to, and the data tells the story, right? So we just need to think more nuanced to meet people where they are. And uh, this is what data can do. You know, to to Peter's point about marketing data, you you wouldn't run a marketing campaign today without understanding customers. And it doesn't work if you don't. Neither does this work, so.
0: that's a Very brilliant case example in a way that you are actually able to use the language from Diversity Atlas to say, yeah, we can't say race, but these are the appearances that we have. It's a totally different paradigm in the way we talk about difference and similarity. Are there other cases where you've seen people use this to understand themselves or the organization in a more brilliant, more enlightened manner, because what you just said felt more enlightened to me than simply categorizing or reducing people Mm -hmm. to this notion of race, which we know has no biological grounding, but we use it because it's been the thing that we've come accustomed to, particularly in the Western world. All
2: the time, I mean, on a very personal level, um, on on an organisational level, on a a team level. So, I mean, just yesterday we were part of a workshop and we were um, talking about this very topic and we started to then go through um, the survey and the questions and started to share their personal story, incredible personal story, because she said, this is making me think about my identity. And she said, I've never even shared these things with anyone before, and now I'm doing it. So there was a real sort of relief with that. And we see that all the time. The survey technically, on average, takes three minutes, 54 seconds to complete. And that's important because we needed to avoid survey fatigue, which kicks in about seven minutes. So we have to find a way to get a lot of information in an engaging way in a very short space of time. Having said that, there are some people that take dates. One of our clients um, told us that when the survey was being completed, some of their team were ringing parents to ask them where they were born and guardians where they were born because they didn't know. And it wasn't because they just thought, oh, I don't know. That is an option. They wanted to find out. Now, you know, if you're the parent or the guardian and you're getting this call saying, where were you born? It's like. Why do you want to know? I mean, this is great. It's a great conversation to have. Oh, we're doing this thing at work. No one rings their parents or guardians when they're doing an engagement survey at work. It's just, it comes and goes. So it's just that engaging experience. And at a broader level, you know, managers that are looking after teams across different countries would have a view that, oh, it's one team. You know, I treat everybody the same. It's one team. But then when they see the nuances across those teams and they see the nuances in each and different countries, and then you start to look at very broad aspects of of culture. If you look at Hofstadter or Aaron Meyer or start to understand cultural differences at that macro level, they start to realize that it's one team, but there are many nuances that I need to take into account to better engage and manage that team. So again, the data tells the story. And gets people thinking, which is what matters.
1: And to Michael's point, I think what the platform allows us to do, Diversity Atlas, it it through the new ask approach, it allows us to go beyond these broad categories. Where if we just look, referring to people as white people and black people and Asian people and Latino people, and uh, we just see them as white people. But if you just take Europe for example, and you just looked at all the white people there. You know, you can have everyone across that whole spectrum of Hofstetter, where you can look at the Greek people, you know, my ancestry and my culture were highly collectivist and always thinking that the democracy's sword is swinging from above, so, you know, the end of the universe, the end of the world is nearby, all the way to Northern European people who are highly individualistic and really, really different. So that's what the platform allows, and we don't want to whitewash these differences, we want to be able to recognise and the importance of being able to apply an anthropological lens to this work, which allows us to understand why people think the way they do, why they behave the way they do. And that intercultural framework now allows us to be able to foster greater understanding, intercultural understanding, and to deepen our engagement with every single person. But I'll never forget the very first time we used Diversity Atlas at the minimal viable product phase about 2017, it was full of bugs. We still need another two years of development. We used it within our organization and someone had selected they spoke seven languages. I said, no one in Australia speaks seven languages. So they've obviously made a mistake. So I asked if that person could volunteer because the survey is anonymous. And it was very interesting because this was someone who worked in the accounts area, it was just a junior accounts. And she goes, well, where well, do I come from in West Africa? Everyone speaks seven languages, fluently. But it was interesting the conversation that came out of that and, and how everyone just viewed this person differently. Because most people in Australia speak one language. Yeah, I might, you know, Reza and I speak two or three languages, but that's pretty rare. You know, we don't have a focus on languages. We're so far of the mood, we're a continent. Here, why do we need to learn anything else but English? But seven languages? So, It was really interesting because, you know, it, it really made people think about identity and also recognize that, you know, linguistic competency to speak seven languages requires an enormous amount of competency that goes beyond just speaking one language.
0: Wow. That's the kind of story that I love to hear Peter. And I think hopefully the listeners get what that means to diversity and complexity. And this, who people really are, because it's not easy to really even fully understand our own personal identities, one, because they oftentimes shift. I'm learning German right now. And I imagine my identity will shift as my German skills grow, right? My ability to communicate locally in Switzerland will shift in Germany in Austria will shift as a result of my language competency so that story is absolutely spot on so we're moving towards closing out michael one thing that you think dei practitioners can do to make diversity equity and inclusion normative in organizational life
2: it has to be data
0: i I know that's where we're
2: coming from today but everything's data orientated you know if you need to convince other people they're going to want to see the data they're going to want to understand where things are it needs to be tracked and measured otherwise you can't you know it's just all ideas so you know like any function it, it needs a data-driven approach and i suppose from that basis the next question is well when do you start My I, I firm believer is there's no time like the present because the earlier you start collecting data the more narratives you'll have from that moment forward, the more evidence you'll have from that moment forward about what's happening. Don't be worried about what the data is going to reveal. The data will reveal what it reveals. And I think one of the things that I've seen um, and spoken to numerous people about surveys that focus on experience, i.e. inclusion, you know, we've heard countless organisations say, you know, did you share the results on the inclusion survey? No, we didn't. Why not? Because they were terrible. So you're engaging the workforce in this journey of how inclusive are we, but then you're not revealing what the result is because it's so bad. So how on earth are you going to create movement around that? So sometimes you need to step a few paces back, not in terms of, of movement, but just in direction to go forward. And if you just start with who are we, a simple question, that reveals so much incredible insight, that's a great place to start. Because there's no right or wrong with that. It's just what is. So that's going to find a way to bring people in. And and that needs to be done oh. as soon as possible.
0: I love it. Thank you so much, Michael. And Peter, same question for you, as well as anything else that you think would be helpful as we close out.
1: Well, I might wear my Dr. Zeus hat now and say, you know, we've heard the saying that diversity is a fact inclusion is an act and I'd like to add to that if you want to act you need the fact which is the data but in saying that I think what we all need to do in this work and if we want to build inclusive spaces uh, we need to all lean in and we all need to lean in with a heavy heart at the end of the day and if we're hearing people who might be saying things which are you know off centre it's about just leaning in at the end of the day and, uh, and asking the simple question help me understand rather than pushing back and i think if we can all do that we can all build more inclusive spaces
0: correct gentlemen i appreciate your time your energy what you're creating in the world and i am just delighted and appreciative of you welcoming me into that conversation welcoming inclusion wins into that conversation and i'm looking forward to the future and For all of those that are listening, I hope this was helpful and make it a great day and peace. If you are committed or simply a little bit curious about how to make DEI accessible to everyone, actionable, that is unambiguously prioritized and sustainable, aligned with personal and organizational purpose, hit the subscribe button. Make it a great day. Peace.